selfishness is not doing for others. The Bible is very clear about the idea of doing for others, getting you off of you, in essence. Mm -hmm. Doing for others is doing deeds as unto Jesus. And again, the idea behind it is if you're not doing this, then in essence, you're ignoring the Lord. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is the message of the cross. But this message stands in stark contrast to our culture, a culture that values doing what I want, when I want, how I want. Dying to this self-centered mindset can be very painful. But ultimately, anyone who wants to follow Jesus must be willing to die to themselves, not just people who struggle with sexual sin. And yet, an amazing thing happens when we surrender to the way of the cross. We are deeply transformed. Today we look at the message of the cross and how it demands the death of self. I'm your host, Nate Dancer, and this is Purity for Life. For the last 30 years, Pastor Steve Gallagher has been warning the church that the spiritual atmosphere in the end times church will be perilous. Why? Because many will profess to be Christians and will outwardly look like Christians, but they will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They'll have a form of godliness, but will deny the power that would make them godly. In other words, They will embrace Christianity, but reject the message of the cross. In this episode, and in two more to come, we'll look at the message of the cross and what its implications are for us today. Steve Gallagher has joined me in the studio. Steve is the founder and president of Pure Life Ministries. Steve, it's good to see you again. Nice to be here with you, Mike. Steve, we are going to start a new series of discussions uh, in today's program about your book, Standing Firm Through the Great Apostasy. And I want to just start off by asking you why this book and why at this time? Well, I wish I had some great, you know, spiritual answer for you. But the truth is, Mike, that the reason this book came about was because a few years ago I was invited to be a keynote speaker at a biblical counseling conference which was going to be held one year later. And they told me that the theme of the conference was going to be the narrow way. And as I began studying that theme, what began to emerge was a very disturbing and frightening picture, much more so than I had anticipated going into this. And it was that Bible study that took me down the path that led me to eventually write this book. This is a difficult book to read. And I mean difficult not in the sense that it's technically difficult to read, but I don't know how anyone could read it and not be tremendously challenged to take a sobering look at their faith. Well, that's the point of it, because I'm in great fear for people, Mike. The reality is that as I started studying, first of all, what the Word of God clearly says, and secondly, what the writers of yesteryear wrote about these subjects, I started realizing that many, many, many people who name the name of Christ really have never been converted. And I started to see that 
unless something changes in their life, they're headed into eternal damnation. And that's what was so upsetting to me. Well, Steve, I know that part of the motivation of you writing this book was that there would be a wake-up call for Christians, that they would evaluate what they have. Is it a genuine faith? Is it a real saving faith? You go into the book really looking at the core of Christianity, and that is the message of the cross, the cross of Christ. Give us a picture, if you will, as you did in this chapter, of what happened at the cross. Mike, I think one of the reasons people are not more affected in their Christianity is that the cross isn't very real to them. The reality is we can hardly describe it in terms that befit its horror. It was a horrible thing. The physical abuse that he took was just terrible. It was barbaric. But there was something much deeper than that. This was the thing that struck horror in his heart in the garden was that the innocent one, the one who was pure, was going to somehow take 6,000 years of sin and crime and every despicable thing imaginable that has ever happened, that if somehow it was all in some inexplicable way packaged into one bitter cup, that he was forced to drink. And that's what he recoiled at in the garden, was the reality of taking that filth into his being. And actually, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, it wasn't just that he took the sin upon himself, he became sin. Now, this is conjecture, but some people think that him becoming sin was something that people could actually see. And at the very least, that his heavenly father could see and turned away from in disgust. Yes. But yet, this is the reality of what Scripture teaches, is that he took sin into his being. He had to because he was the sacrificial lamb. And so what did he look like, and what was the reality of him taking that sin upon himself? I don't know exactly, but I know it must have broken the father's heart. My father, my father, why are you forsaking me? You know, at his time of greatest need, his father turned away from him. You mentioned that Peter had solemnly instructed us to conduct ourselves in fear, and you thought that this perhaps was one of the reasons. Jesus, having done this for us, to treat this flippantly should be a very fearful thing. Well, that was the whole point of beginning the book with the reality of what really happened at Calvary, to kind of shake us, like you said, out of this flippant, nonchalant attitude about Calvary and what happened there. You know, our attitude is, by and large, and not everyone, but with many, we have developed this entitlement attitude with God that he owes it to us, that, you know, okay, I said the sinner's prayer, I go to church on Sundays, you owe heaven to me. And that attitude is in many hearts today. You know, it's quiet, it's subtle, we don't ever really think that through, of course, but it's very subtle. And when you start to come into the reality of what God had to do to his son, how he had to exact his wrath upon his son, it makes you sit up and take notice and have a much greater reverential fear of what the implications of that cross mean. In talking about the message of the cross, you started out by taking a look 
at a difference that you saw between what was real in the life of Judas and what was real in the lives of the other 11. Talk a little bit about that. Well, we know that some months before Calvary, that Jesus began to warn his disciples of what was to come. For instance, in Luke 9, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. He was telling the disciples what was coming. Apparently, it was on a different occasions he would remind them because, you know, we're all kind of dumb, and we forget things, and who wants to think about something like that anyway? Yeah, they had a lot going on. <laughs> <laughs> they did, you know. It would have been indiscernible to you or I, but Jesus could see inside people's hearts, and he could see that there was a different reaction going on in Judas's heart towards this message than there was the other 11. Even though outwardly, they looked like they were all with him. Yeah, I mean, well, let's face it. On the night that Judas betrayed them, they were like, is it me? You know, they couldn't even figure out that it was Judas. There was nothing about Judas's life that stood out to tell them that he was a traitor, that he was saying no, that he was rejecting the message of the cross and Christianity as it was being offered to him. He was rejecting it, but there was nothing in his life, and you and I wouldn't have seen it either. You know, the wheat and the tare— Plants look identical when they're, you know, seedlings. You know, we hear that, but if we're in the church and we hear that, we just automatically assume, but I'm not the tear. Yeah, I'm the wheat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, even though we can't discern the difference outwardly, because we're looking at our lives outwardly, we just automatically assume, well, it's not me. That is the purpose for this book, because I had to make it so clear that any sincere person, even if they are a terror and they're sincere and they just have never really looked at themselves, you know, that they could not escape the truth. Now, you mentioned in comparing Judas with the other 11 that what it was that was different about him. Let's look at the 11 first. I mean, they were immature. They were spiritual babies. You know, They were all they, a big mess. <laughs> they were all a big mess. I mean, you had Thomas, who was depressed about everything. Peter was a loud mouth. You know, they just all had their issues and their baggage, just like we do. They were right. just men. But there was something in their hearts that responded in a positive way to the message of sacrifice and self-denial that's intertwined in the Christian message. But when Judas would hear those things— There was a different reaction inside. There was a resistance. There was a pulling away. There was a rejecting going on inside. But again, outwardly, he was doing everything right. He would fit right in with today's church, Mike. That's the thing people don't understand is they've got him made out to be some kind of a monster. But the truth is Judas would sit in the pew with us and we wouldn't think a thing of it. He's really no different than many Christians so-called, that are in our churches today. Mm. He wrote this. He said, The life of Judas represents those of all ages who desire the heaven of Christ without the cross of Christ. That's right. And you've already hinted as to what that means. What does that mean? Mike, the bottom line between real Christianity and pseudo-Christianity is this. Who is on the throne of your heart? And that's what we'll get into in the next show. We will break that down and make that more clear. But who is on the throne of your heart? We can talk the talk, but there's a reality 
inside that Jesus is looking at and is the determining factor about where we're going to spend eternity. And that statement and the reality of what that statement means is seen at the cross. It really is. Amen. Well, Steve, like you said, we'll come back next week and we'll break that down a little bit further. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Glad to be here. If we want to truly live the Christian life and embrace the cross, we cannot allow selfishness to rule in our hearts. Now, I realize that this may sound like a daunting task. It's okay if you don't know what to do or where to begin. God has provided his word to show us. He's given us everything we need if we would just seek him. This interview with Mike Johnston and Bill Lucas will help you begin to see Scripture's definition of selfishness and the true way to overcome it. And I would encourage you to do more than just listen to what they have to share. Let it drive you to examine the Word for yourself. Bill Lucas has joined us in the studio. Bill is a counselor for our live-in program here at Pure Life Ministries. Bill, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me back, Mike. Bill, we want to talk today about overcoming self. And as we're looking at the issue of sexual sin and helping those dealing with sexual sin, why is there a need to even talk about overcoming self? Well, we believe that sexual sin is a byproduct of selfishness. So when we talk about sexual sin, what we're talking about is someone who is selfish. And that's the key point of the idea of overcoming sexual sin is to deal with the person's selfishness. Mm-hmm. Really, we could say that about all sin. Is the Absolutely. root of it is love of self. It's true. Uh, the desire to please self rather than God. Well, well, let's just assume, and I know this is a stretch, Bill, let's just assume we know absolutely nothing about this. <laughs> <laughs> that is a stretch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Well, we've all dealt with it, of course, and mm-hmm. uh, anyone who has taken even a brief look at their own heart will know that self is at the root of of everything that we deal with where our lives don't line up with uh, with God. Well, let's go ahead and go into the Word of God, Bill, for those who may not have looked at this idea of self and begin with what is selfishness? What can we learn from the Word of God about selfishness? Really, there's a lot of different aspects all over the New Testament. I want to focus on the New Testament. And the idea of selfishness is spread out throughout the New Testament. Mm-hmm. I think of uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. It even begins a translation that says, don't be selfish. Uh, it sounds like a command to me, mm-hmm. the idea of just a straightforward, don't be selfish. And throughout the scriptures, I think of First John 3, Matthew 25, starting with verse 31, and James 2, 15 and 16, they all kind of have this same content. And it's the idea of this, is that if you see a need, if you see something that um, needs to be done and you don't do it, it's selfishness. It's like if you see a need and you don't meet it, um, you're considered selfish in the Bible. It seems to be very clear. James talks about your faith is dead without works. You mentioned some verses real quickly, and for those who may not be familiar with them, let's go back to the First John 3.17 and talk to us a little bit about that passage. Okay, I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit. First John 3.17 says something along the natures of that the kingdom of God is about people. And with the idea of selfishness, not to help those people is really saying you don't know God. Throughout the book of John, it gives that type of example of doing what the Bible says. And in the reality of it is, is if you're not doing it, you're being selfish. You're, you're saying, I don't really know God. 
And you can kind of measure where you're at spiritually by how much mm. of your life you're giving away to other people. Paul said, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with lowliness of mind, consider others more important than yourself. And this idea of the kingdom of God is all about meeting the needs of other people. We can really kind of look at our own lives through those verses and kind of get a gauge where we're at. And I was sitting here thinking about people that are wrapped up in sexual sin and how overwhelming it can be for them to hear these kind of verses because, you know, going in, I am utterly selfish. Is there any help and hope right. for me? Right. There is, of course. I mean, that's what we're doing here at Pure Life Ministries, but it can be very overwhelming. But it's still very important for us to examine our lives in light of Scripture. Exactly. Mm. Right. And Bill, this idea that uh, how we treat others or what we do or do not do for others being a reflection of, of our relationship with the Lord is repeated again in that Matthew 25 passage that you mentioned. Right. Matthew 25, 31 through 46 talks about, again, it's just the idea of selfishness is not doing for others. The Bible is very clear about the idea of doing for others, getting you off of you, in essence. Mm -hmm. Doing for others is doing deeds as unto Jesus. And again, the idea behind it is if you're not doing this, then in essence, you're ignoring the Lord. It really exposes your selfishness and how much you're getting out of yourself. It's an amazing thing to just the whole concept of thinking that it's so far from our natural thinking to give our whole lives for others. It seems like that Everything that we do mostly centers on self, and I believe that God is really trying to break through, and if we could really get a grip on that and see that for what it is and Jesus being our example, that there's where our happiness comes from. Yeah. Just giving of ourselves. Let's take that as a lead into what we want to discuss, which is the flip side of selfishness, and that, of course, is unselfishness. Hmm. Uh, Let's look at the Word of God, Bill, and just see if we can get a few examples of unselfishness in the Word of God. I think true unselfishness, first off, is Jesus. That's Hmm. He's our ultimate example, um, so we can look at His life. But then again, I think of uh, Moses in the Old Testament being the most humble man what that must have been like to, at times, literally say, God, wipe my name out of the book of life mm. so wow. that these can enter in. I, I can't even even fathom that. Yeah, he was always interceding on behalf always. of the people. Yeah, It is amazing. I it's, Sometimes I wonder at the idea of how someone can be that in tune to God the Father. I think of Abraham uh, many times. The one example I can think of is with Lot, allowing mm. Lot to make a choice unselfish. Uh, Abraham had every right to take which side he wanted, but he knew he had a side of contentment. Wherever he would end up, he wanted he would be content. I tell you, the one I think of is uh, the one that I relate to is Joseph. Uh, Right. (laughs) You know, his his brothers had basically left him for dead. Right. And yet when he had opportunity and really had the authority and the power to pretty much wipe them out, he didn't. He took care of them, and he forgave them. How would we respond if someone had done to us what his family had done to him? You see in all of these examples the love of God yeah. being demonstrated through man right. and the unselfishness yeah. of God. That's really what we see is glimpses of the unselfishness of God being acted out through man. You know, mm. Joseph had every right <laughs> to, really yeah. to annihilate the group, and Abraham had a right to take the choicest land and and all of the Bible characters that were you know, godly men, yeah. all of them had some level of unselfishness mm. in them. Paul, 
You right. know, Paul yeah. Paul was so much in some ways, I don't want to overstate it, but was so much like Jesus. Just I think he probably lived every single day of his life giving out, right. ministering, giving away. And it was I think about these guys and how much they gave. And I often ask the Lord, why don't we have more power, Lord? Why right. isn't there more power to live a life like that? And I don't know if it's our culture or what, but I really believe that in the, in the last days, something's going to happen and we are going to be empowered to live that kind of a life so that other people will be built up in God and they're going to see and know the real God. Yeah. Well, now, I know neither one of you would say this, but I'm, I'll say it for you. <laughs> we do see it here at Pure Life Ministries. I mean, you take Bill, yourself, for example, <laughs> occasionally. <laughs> uh, listen, Bill, you know, you're dealing with uh, men that come into our living program mm-hmm. all the time. That's right. And I know you're like the rest of us. You struggle with, you know, I'd, I'd rather be riding my motorcycle than talking to this guy about his sexual <laughs> problems. You know, but the truth is, is that you do it out of obedience as Christ was obedient to his Father, you do it out of obedience as well. And I know those men are blessed because of that. Right. And that is the love of God Amen. coming That's through right. you. I see, Kathy, uh, you talking to women and you and Steve having given your life out in this ministry. That is the love of God. And I'm not patting either one of you on the back aside from the fact that you've been obedient to God's calling on your life. But the love of God does move through his people. Uh, there is unselfishness. I know what you're saying, Kathy. Mm-hmm. There we're, we're longing for the day. And every Christian is longing for the day when what we're doing out of obedience, uh, we would see more lining up in our inside world right. and in our heart. But there is unselfishness in God's people. Right. Uh, and because the power of God is real right. uh, today, it's it available right, right now. And unfortunately, that's where we're going to have to leave it. We'll come back next week with you, Bill, and finish up this discussion as we look a little bit further into how do we begin to walk in that power of God to live this kind of unselfish life that we've been talking about today. Bill Lucas, thanks so much. All right. All right, we'll get back to that interview in a minute. But I wanted to stress again the importance of getting in God's Word if you really want to see change in your life. One thing I know that discourages people from studying the Bible is just not knowing how to do it. And if you're in this boat, I'd like to encourage you, check out our Walk of Repentance Bible study. This 24-week Bible study will show you how to apply the Word of God to very specific areas in your life. And then... You become a doer of the word. And guess what happens to doers of the word? They really change. You can purchase the Walk of Repentance or one of our other Bible studies by going to store.purelifeministries.org. And now, to finish up today's show, Mike, Bill, and Kathy continue to discuss how to live out a selfless life, not just doing good things, but serving others from a compassionate heart. We talked about what the self is, what a selfish life is like, and what an unselfish life is like, and we really want to move from that point today, uh, talking about how do we begin to live this unselfish life that we talked about. I'm thinking about Jesus being very just content. He was mm-hmm. very content doing his Father's will, and we are in a culture that caters to self, mm-hmm. but we have learned to get into the needs of others and yes. becoming unselfish is really what creates contentment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really the idea of mercy, doing mercy, and you find fulfillment. You start to learn that if you give in to self, you see how unfulfilled you are. Let's talk about that, because that really takes us to our third point, and it is what we're learning. It is what the Lord is, is teaching here at Pure Life Ministries and teaching men coming out of sexual sin, that the answer to selfishness, the way to become unselfish 
really is to put others first. Right. It isn't a matter of feelings. It's not a matter of a mystical, super spiritual thing. It's a choice that we make, isn't right. it? Right. Yeah, well, I just, again, it's just one of those things where we've learned that by giving of ourselves, by doing the thing that necessarily isn't what we want to do, but we know God's will is in this to meet the needs of others, that we find fulfillment. And it brings an inside joy, that peace that surpasses all understanding. And we have found out that that is the key to overcoming sexual sin, getting into the needs of others. The bondage isn't sexual sin. The bondage is selfishness. Right, Right. exactly. And and you can trace that throughout your whole life, Mm -hmm. other areas that there may be, you know, struggles in or whatever. The reason we don't follow the Lord or the reason why we're not obedient whatever is because we are selfish and that's the problem and that's what god wants to deal with that is the sin that has to be repented of and the thing to do if you're living a selfish life is to get out of yourself and go and find a need and meet it every day until that becomes habitual and it does right it does It, it will become habitual to give away yourself Bill, we have three verses here that really i think clearer than almost any give a very specific uh, admonition to us to do what we're talking about. I want you to read those three verses. Okay, we got Philippians 2.4. It says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Also in Romans 15.1, it says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. And 1 Corinthians 10.24 says, Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Those are um, just powerful words of truth Mm -hmm. that you got to rise above the natural to see the reality of the effect that each one of these scriptures I just read will have on a person Mm -hmm. if they choose to obey it. It's an amazing thing. It's like a, a spiritual law that God has. It's, it's like reaping and sowing. You, you will reap what you sow. Mm-hmm. And as you give of yourself, as you think of others as more important, as you lean on not just pleasing yourself, your inside world becomes one of uh, compassion and love, and you, you really, truly get set free mm-hmm. from the bondage of selfish selfishness, of being self-centered. And I do think we need to make this point because there is a difference between just being a good person and this being a true work of God in your life. It is spiritual, and it does require the work of God in our lives, and it requires really that we forsake our lives in this world to follow Christ. There's a difference between a good person reaping the benefits because sowing and reaping is a law in the universe. Right. If, you, if, if you're a good person, you're generally speaking going to live a decent life and, and exactly. a happy life. But that's not the same thing as having inward peace, inward joy, the right. Holy Spirit dwelling in you, and right. an eternal hope. Right. That's yeah. very much different than what the unsaved have to look forward to. Yeah. Right. Well, then we look at also at the way uh, Jesus interacted with the Pharisees. You know, outwardly, they did everything perfectly, mm-hmm. uh, but they didn't love people. They right. didn't care about the people they were ministering they to. Do. I don't think they right. were very happy They either. had a different motive, really. <laughs> they had a different motive. And right. so the inward change, Jesus said, you've cleaned the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup is still filthy. And it's because this inward change mm-hmm. of motive, of attitude, of thinking of others better than yourself had not occurred in them right? Uh, because they had not been broken. They had not been humbled, and that is also all part of overcoming self. Right, yeah, it's the, that's, that's it. It's the motive behind what you're doing and why you're doing it. We found with the men that come to the program 
that they're on their best behavior when they get here. They're desperate. They want to change. But as time goes, they begin to kind of get back into their regular routines, Mm -hmm. what's really in them. And you really find out how selfish these men are when they get backed into a corner, when they get put in a spot where they're pressed to have to respond to truth, where we think of uh, Hebrews thirteen seventeen, obeying those who are in authority over you. And when we establish that here in the program, they begin to learn that why are we trying to become selfless? It's simply because that's the way Jesus lived. It's yeah. because of Jesus. And when the men begin to see that for what it is, then that's what really affects the change. That's when people can really get in a bind. They, they can get really backed up against a wall, in essence, and still respond in unselfishness. And so what these men, what we're all learning, ultimately, is self-control. Right. We're learning to control ourself. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. And right. you have to have the Holy Spirit to live this way. Yeah. You know, so often what we see here at Pure Life Ministries is people trying to become good Christians in the flesh. Right. And they are not happy people. That right. is not, nobody right. can serve Christ in the flesh and please God or himself. I mean, right. and we've all tried. It's impossible. Yeah, every Christian tries. Sure. We all try it, but we find out quickly, hopefully that you can't please God in the flesh. It has to be done through the Holy Spirit's power, through our submission to his will, his desire, his plan. We have to come under that. And that's a very real act of the will that we all have to undergo. Amen. Well, Bill, thank you so much for uh, allowing God to teach you how to overcome self. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And uh, thanks for talking to us about it today. It's it's been good to be here, and I've really—this is a a very special topic, and it's something that's an everyday thing. We're constantly examining where Christ is in our life or where he isn't. Where we haven't overcome self. Right. <laughs> yeah. But like you said, there is hope. Amen. Amen. Because he keeps teaching us and he keeps empowering us to overcome self. That's right. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Bill. All right. You know, if you haven't experienced the joy and the peace that's available in a close relationship with God, then embracing the cross and denying self will not sound appealing. But There is no other way to really start the journey outside of full surrender. There's no quick fix for our problems. God has provided a way, we can accept it, or we can reject it. But the testimony of our ministry is that victory is promised for anyone who's willing to walk the path of the cross. Next week, we're going to continue to look at how to embrace the message of the cross in our lives But that's all for today's episode of Purity for Life. Thanks for joining us. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org. 